This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Get a gut check with Drew Armstrong. He is team leader for U.S. Healthcare for Bloomberg, leading our coverage here in the United States on this, working closely with colleagues all around the world. Drew joins us on the phone from New York. So, Drew, there's so much to talk about, and I guess where I would start is what's top of mind for you? What's the most important thing you think we need to know since you have a view over all of this? You know, I think the thing that everybody is watching right now is, you know, what I, I would almost think about is kind of the second phase of um, experimenting with how we control this uh, disease. You know, we in in February and March, we went through a period of saying, hey, we're going to put in place all of these measures. Let's see if they work to stop to control the spread of this thing. And now we're entering this phase of reopening gradually now that we've learned um, a great deal more about the disease and saying what's going to happen next. And I think both of these decisions were made at the times with um, a great deal of uncertainty without perfect information. Um, and, you know, entering into the unknown um, has been sort of the theme of this entire entire outbreak. Um, and, and we're kind of watching a, uh, a, a, a great <laughs> a giant set of experiments, um, uh, public health experiments being played out in the United States right now um, with uncertain outcomes. Right. I feel like it's the one thing in terms of the race for a vaccine where we've actually seen some global cooperation and sharing of information to try and to try and get something as soon as possible. I do wonder, though, Drew, what worries you the most? The time it's going to take for a vaccine? What about this internal U.S. government projection that shows the nation's coronavirus outbreak, you know, accelerating by June to more than 200,000 new cases, 2,500 deaths per day? Is it the idea that, you know, we get a second wave here and it's really tough? What worries you the most, you know, on this day? Here we are, May 5th. We've gone through a lot, but I just wonder. The first thing I want to do is actually touch on that projection. I think you know, I know that was widely reported on yesterday. Um, mm-hmm. I know we, you know, we wrote about it as well um, in the in the White House and some of the health agencies that um, whose names were on it and, and appeared to be involved in it were not particularly helpful in creating and uh, providing any context around you know what was you know what assumptions went into that you know into that projection and, and what actually was going on there. Um, we have subsequently been told that you know those numbers were attached to. You know, uh, if there was no control at all of spread, no mitigation and so on and so forth. So I think, you know, they, they, some big, scary numbers there, but I think some big, scary numbers that probably don't reflect reality um, on the ground. Um, you know, I think we are going to continue to obviously see new cases and see um, uh, thousands of additional deaths around the country. But I think in terms of the, you know, 200,000 new cases a day figure, um, I think not a lot of people are, are currently um, projecting that to be. To be to be totally clear, and I think it's important to, to emphasize that, um, just because I know that did catch a lot of people's attention. Right. Um, you know, moving on to your question about some of the some of the vaccine work. Um, you know, I think there are great great hopes um, that uh, that this effort will be successful, um, and that some of the drug companies that are working on this um, on their own will be successful. But 
you know, there is there is not a long history um, or any history in the world of, of being able to move uh, move that quickly. Um, and I think some of the hope is that we get uh, therapeutic options, you know, drugs that are effective at treating the disease and the severe patients who need it, not, you know, the mild people who don't, um, that alleviate some of that burden and reduce some of the risk uh, to society and to the health system. So, Drew, I, I want to go back to something you said at the beginning, because I think it's really important, this this sort of new phase we're living in, which is which feels like living with this for, for some amount of time. And, you know, you touched on the, the vaccines. As you look across this and the reopening and, you know, the sort of staggered reopening that we see, depending on where you're looking at in the country, ultimately, ultimately we are Bloomberg. We, we look at businesses and the economy. What do you see out there that, that you think is most important for us to understand in terms of what we're learning about the economic aspects of this? You know, I think, you know, when you talk to people and you, and you read some of the reports coming in from another country, people are really trying to figure out a new way of doing business. I mean, you look at some of the poll numbers where people think, you know, there is public concern about lifting measures too soon. And if there's public concern about lifting measures too soon, those same people are all the folks who are likely to say, well, you know, maybe I'm not going to go out to a restaurant just yet, even if it's open. Um, or maybe, um, you know, even if they open the movie theaters back up, I won't be the first person in there. I think, you know, one of the ways that I've been thinking about this is that we, you know, that there's there's this, this uh, for a long time in advance of this, we were kind of operating on the default of, do we really have to close everything down? You know, right. Is that really the right decision to do? Is this, you know, I think the default was toward not doing anything, and it was a surprise when we did. We've now switched, I think, societally for a lot of people into a default mode where it's, well, are we really ready to open things back up? Am I really going to go back out and do all the things that I was? I think few people anticipated that big of a shift in mindset um, to happen that quickly and for it to be um, that in Scott. Now, it could be that in three weeks, you know, the sun is out and shining. People want to leave their house. They've been sick of cooped, being cooped up. I think we've all seen photos of people wanting to get out um, and be social um, and uh, and be out of their house and, and do some of these things. We will, I think it very much remains to be seen how people behave in all of this. We are kind of in an unprecedented time. And I think all of those things are, 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 are factors right. that flow through to, you know, consumer right. demand and what people want and how they act. Well, I think it'll be day by day, and I think if numbers start to go up and cases start to go up, we're all going to be like, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> we can't play around with this. It's such a good point, Drew Armstrong, team leader for U.S. Healthcare for Bloomberg. Thank you. I I love well, that framing because he's exactly right that there's this sense, and we get this from the government. It's like people want to get out, and then people are like, nah, I'm not so sure. You know, I know and, how and it, I am. It's such right? an amazing it, – it's a really interesting yeah. way to frame it and to think about it. And I hadn't thought about it that distilled down. So our thanks to Drew Armstrong. They can build it. They can open it. But will they come? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, as we alluded to just a few minutes ago, even amid all of this – we could have a new stock exchange, a new exchange uh, put together by some names that you've heard of. They've gotten the okay, but there is this whole matter of trying to start a new business and a tech-heavy business and a people-intensive business amid all of this. Lynn Nguyen has the story. She's a finance reporter for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from New York City. So, Lynn this is something that's been in the works for a while. MEMX, I believe it's called, or, or do they say, like, is there something cool that Memex. they do like? Memex. Okay. <laughs> I figured that was probably Memex. it. Um, so, tell us about it. I don't know if that's it. cool. 
<laughs> well, Jason, one of the challenges of writing this story was that there are so many household names that I can't include all of them in uh, in the actual story. But, you know, your Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan on the banking side, and then you've got Fidelity, E-Trade um, on, on the kind of a retail side. So we've got a lot of huge financial market players that are invested in this firm, um, Virtu, Citadel Securities as well. So we've got a really big um, spectrum of different types of players, and they're all kind of getting in on this um, new exchange. And it seems that the exchange has been able to do a lot of work from home. Um, a lot of what they do is cloud-based, and so they've been able to write a lot of the code, even though they haven't really been able to go physically to the servers um, during the coronavirus pandemic. So there's been some delay, but it seems like things are starting to pick up again. Remind us why they want their own exchange. So a lot of these players have been complaining for a long time about the high fees that are charged by the incumbent exchanges. We're talking the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ, and they've been particularly angry about the high price of market data. Um, and that sounds like a very um, sort of routine thing. But when you're talking about firms that trade uh, at increasingly high speeds, you know, at the blink of an eye, uh, the amount of data that they need is very, very high, and they get charged um, high fees for that. So they've been very, very upset about that and so upset that they decided to start their own exchange. And so what's a realistic timeline for this to get up and running, given everything that's happening in the world, Lenin? So Jonathan Kellner, the CEO, and I spoke this morning, and he says they're still very aggressively trying to meet that 3Q um, target that they've reset for themselves, which means hopefully starting to um, test the systems this quarter with their participants, you know, doing some of the technology testing and platforms and connecting to the systems, uh, and then eventually going for a third quarter launch. So that sounds aggressive, but again, they're working super hard, and they've got the backing of some very um, big investors behind yeah. this. Who wins, who loses? Well, how does this change kind of the investment world, the trading world as we know it or have known it for a long time, Lenan? So this is a big question, but I think um, what the exchange Memex is trying to do is to put pressure on the incumbents to reduce their fees. Mm -hmm. um, I think there is a potential for this exchange to win because they've got so many big backers and obviously um, they're going to be competing on price. And so they're hoping to drive down prices across the board. So it's possible that the retail investors and any other investors who are in the equity markets will, will benefit if they are, this exchange is successful in driving down prices. Because ultimately, these are the sorts of fees that end up in some form or fashion with both institutional and, as you say, retail investors too, right? That's right. And so, um, you know, the, the equity market is a very complex place, but uh, one of the key sticking points has been that in order to make money in this market, in order to sort of make the maximum profit at lowest cost, you have to drive down the fees. And if your institution is being charged very high fees, then you just can't do that. So everyone is really trying to, you know, push the market to zero here. Right. Yeah. We're, and, and, and even a fraction of whether it's, you know, the margins have gotten so tight on, I feel like, so many of these trades, right? So it makes a difference, potentially. It certainly does. And um, yes, margins are very tight. And that has led to a pretty fractious environment in the equity markets. Yeah. And it's caused um, many players to say, forget it, we're going off on our own. Right, exactly. All right. Well, it's an important story. One of the most read, not surprisingly, on the terminal, given who our audience is, and given, as you say, Lenan, 
all the big names involved in this, everybody, it feels like, is trying to figure out this new world order. And it does take me back, Carol, and I think you were alluding to this, you know, even the race to zero when you think about commissions and fees with the big brokerage houses, yeah. be it Schwab or uh, any of the other big names. All right, Lynn Ann Nguyen, thank you so much. Finance reporter for Bloomberg joining us on the phone from New York City. Yeah, looking forward to seeing how that plays out because I know they've had some dates on the calendar for this yeah. year, I think, for actually trying it all out and, and getting it going. So we'll see whether or not the virus somehow um, prevents them from doing that. Or, as they said, everybody's been working at home and they've had time to kind of maybe move ahead on things. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, the virus pandemic has forced the U.S. government to certainly take on a much bigger role in the U.S. economy. It's also kicked off conversations and debates about a new American industrial policy. Sean Donnan covers this in Bloomberg Businessweek magazine, the story online at Bloomberg.com and on newsstands later on this week. Sean, of course, Bloomberg News senior trade reporter. He's on the phone from Maryland. Also with us is Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber on the phone from Brooklyn. Joel, this is a story, right? We are at an interesting time, certainly in our political history. That's right. And, you know, one of the things that I think we've been talking about a a lot, at least as a staff, is sort of like, what are the ways that this is going to start to change things? And, And some of these things are like, Ones that we, you know, might not change for the best. And other ones are, are I think, get to a more strategic and in some cases almost a nationalistic kind of perspective. And I think that's where Sean came in with this idea. He kind of raised his hand and said, have we, have we thought about industrial policy and like how America's industrial policy might change out of all this? And, and that led him down the rabbit hole. Um, Sean, where, where, what did you find as you started to think and, and report this article up? Yeah, so, I mean, I've been covering the trade wars for the last couple of years, and if, I, if you think about that, that's been really about defense, uh, putting up tariffs, trying to uh, defend uh, sectors in the American economy. And one of the things that we've seen uh, as a result of this pandemic is people really thinking about how do you encourage more production at home, and how do you do that? Well, in the past, it's been through this thing, industrial policy, which for a lot of Republicans and a lot of the the, uh, the kind of free marketers or free marketeers uh, in, in, in the U.S. has been a taboo. You know, we, we don't like in the U.S. to encourage uh, or to think that we're picking winners and losers uh, in the private sector. That's certainly been the rhetoric that has come out of the Republican Party for decades. Well, now when we're having this conversation about what the U.S. economy uh, should look like, how prepared it should be to respond to a pandemic, where we should be producing things like masks uh, and other protective equipment or ventilators. Uh, we're starting to get into the realm of having a real conversation about how government should direct production, industrial production, and, and industrial policy. It's worth saying that, you know, America's been here before. Uh, during the Cold War, uh, we certainly saw a ramping up of the military-industrial complex. We know that the space race gave us all sorts of great private sector products. Uh, we know that uh, the GPS uh, that is in our car comes out of, in part, uh, a need for the U.S. military to have electronic navigation tools. Uh, and so on. The question now, though, in this election year is, is where are we going to go next? So to that end, you know, one of the one of the uh, things that you really focus on in the article is about uh, rare earths, which obviously has become sort of a topic of, in part because of the trade war, uh, because we realized how much of this was actually coming from China. So what did you discover when you started to talk to people in that space? 
Yeah, so rare earths is this, uh, there's 17 of them. Uh, there are these minerals that are used in everything from smartphones to ballistic missiles. Uh, and there's only one mine in the United States right now that's up and running and that produces these things. And that's the Mountain Pass Mine in California, in the Mojave Desert. Uh, it actually, though, has to send what it produces to China to be refined into these actual usable minerals, uh, and then they're sent back to, to, to the U.S. And uh, the owner of that mine uh, is, is now saying, you know what, I need some help uh, from the government, and I need the government to do more to encourage the use of this stuff uh, by big domestic manufacturers and that's companies like Tesla, uh, Apple, and so on, uh, so that uh, we can get production here in the United States, and it makes sense economically. And, Sean, I love that you name-check uh, some well-known names in here to frame this debate from a political perspective, because Peter Navarro obviously has come to the fore in a number of issues uh, that you were intimately familiar with over the past couple of years when it comes to trade. But we're also looking at some different generations and maybe different political philosophies within the GOP that are all sort of circling around this. Help us understand that piece of it. Yeah, and look, I mean, we are all focused on how uh, Donald Trump has changed the economic conversation on trade and uh, even the role of government and its relationship with business in, from a Republican Party context. But what's really interesting is, is what's going to come after Donald Trump, even if he's elected to a second term, there will be an after Donald Trump. And there is this new generation of rising stars in the Republican Party, people like Marco Rubio, Josh Hawley from Missouri, Tom Cotton, uh, who's also in the Senate, uh, who all have a, a, a more uh, of an economic nationalist bent. And they're into this thing of industrial policy. In fact, even before the current crisis, Marco Rubio uh, was giving speeches, laying out a vision of a new American industrial policy and arguing that that is actually a kind of great American tradition. And that's something that the Republican Party should embrace. So, Sean, where is corporate America? Where is actually the global corporate world on all of this? Because any CEO that I talk to that plays in the global world, they are concerned about increased nationalism and focus focus on your local markets, although they're doing more supply chains in their local markets and more production. But I'm just curious, where does the corporate world fit into all of this? Look, I don't, I don't think the business world has ever liked the idea of the government telling it what to do, and I don't think that has changed in any way. But the business world is, is kind of stuck right now uh, because there is this, this crisis going on. And in a crisis, people start getting back to, to some pretty basic instincts, and uh, they like to see things like domestic production. And I think a lot of people in America uh, today would probably not have minded uh, a stronger hand from government in encouraging more domestic production, or at least more domestic stockpiling uh, mm. of uh, personal protective equipment, uh, which has been so vital in, in dealing with this pandemic. We'll see where this all shakes out after the election. It's clear that this is going to be a big topic of discussion between now and November. Uh, whoever wins that race uh, in November is going to come in early next year into the White House, and this is one of the big things they're going to have to wrestle with. Well, and interesting on a day where the president is out in Arizona at Honeywell. I mean, this fits the narrative in some ways, right, Sean? Yeah, and look, that's the interesting part of this conversation that maybe we don't talk enough about. We're, we all have had this, this, this fear that too much of, uh, you know, the, the, 
we are too reliant here in the United States uh, on China and overseas production and, and these global supply chains. But one of the really remarkable stories of the last six weeks or so has been how the U.S. manufacturing sector has really ramped things up. You know, we know the big automakers are now producing ventilators. Ralph Lauren uh, is doing uh, personal protective equipment. Yeah. And, 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 and hospital scrubs, uh, you know, and the Honeywell, which is one of the big producers of uh, these N95 masks, uh, has been ramping up production uh, as well. So, I mean, we have seen in the last six weeks uh, American uh, industry yeah. really uh, jump on this and, and, and take advantage and, and come to the fore. It would be interesting to see what we learn from that going right. forward when it comes to draft and policy. I feel like it will be in the history books and the economic books going forward. For it just sure. feels like we're at that time. All right, Sean Donnan, thank you so much. Our, th- our thanks to Joel Weber as well. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Or it is time for the drive to the close. Jeff Chang is with us, co-founder and chief operating officer in charge of product development at CBOE Vest. They've got over a billion dollars in assets under management on the phone from McLean, Virginia. Jeff, nice to have you here with us on this Tuesday. So tell us a little bit about your world, how you guys have been impacted. I hope you're safe, your family's safe, your employees are doing okay. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, I mean, we've seen, uh, as far as our world, you know, in this market, advisors are, are still nervous, so they're they're looking for for downside protection. Uh, so, as far as we've seen, um, you know, they're they're looking for for hedges. So we've seen record flows into our buffer protect strategy. So, um, like you mentioned before, over a billion dollars year to date. So these target outcome strategies uh, really allow investors to invest in the market, but the uh, with built-in buffers to protect against downside losses. Um, so as an example, our strategy seek to buffer, let's say, the first 10% of downside loss of the S&P. Uh, and, and as an example, um, if the S&P was down, let's say, 15%, uh, the strategy will only seek to be down 5%. But the thing is, what was critical for us uh, in this market is that with these types of strategies, investors were still able to have upside growth potential up to a cap. Uh, and we have seen you know, how devastating it is in the past uh, for investors to go to cash during downturns like this and, mm-hmm. and miss the upside recoveries in days like this. And so how does it work? I mean, it, help us understand the logistics of, you know, how you end up sort of picking this and, and choosing a strategy and, and choosing elements of this strategy, especially in a market as volatile as this, Jeff. Sure. So investors have a lot of choices as far as, you know, downside risk management. Um, and, I, and I think how investors actually choose our types of strategies is because if, if you really look at the world of, of risk management, they really have kind of really largely three kind of options. One is, you know, diversification, what we saw in, in Q1, which was really challenged or, or largely didn't work because broad equity markets suffered. You know, we had huge drops across all indexes. And we even saw investment-grade bonds start to lose value. Even, uh, you know, it wasn't until the Federal Reserve that came in to start buying bonds that we see the uh, recovery. So uh, that's the first way, um, and that's dependent upon uh, the idea that, you know, 
uh, if asset A falls, asset B goes up. And what we've seen during times of crisis is that, you know, those correlations start tend well, to approach one. Well, so but, let me just jump in for a second because I, sure. I, I know you're explaining your strategy, but I do wonder, you know, right, you've got a target outcome, right? So you, you've got yep. a return profile and that's what investors bank on. Um, and risk is, you know, there's a certain level of risk into all of this. But I do wonder in a market like we've seen, you know, how are those investments and those targets impacted by the extreme volatility that we've seen in the market specifically this year? And I think safe to say that many folks think we're not out of the woods yet when it comes to that. So how do how do these types of funds, these target funds that you guys have specifically, Jeff, um, do in extreme volatility? That's a great question. So it actually, uh, in the case of extreme volatility, the strategies can tend to benefit, um, given that we actually get our downside protection. Uh, through exchange-traded options. So as volatility starts to rise, it, it does provide an, up, uh, an opportunity to, for, for more upside potential. Um, so in this case, uh, you know, in, in, during times of, of crisis, we actually, for, for the purpose of getting upside, actually in some, in some cases welcome uh, that volatility. Interesting. It, it, explain that part to me. You, you welcome the volatility. Why? The idea is because we're buying, let's say, um, let's say take our example as our, our strategy, we, we, we have, let's say, a 10% protection. Uh, in, in a lot of our strategies, we fund that protection uh, by selling, let's say, uh, upside potential, in this case, by selling a, a cover call. Now, with increase in volatility, that, that premium starts to generate more, uh, as a potential to generate more premium as volatility increases. That means that we could actually have more upside potential by selling a higher strike call uh, in cases of, you know, during periods of higher vol. But does, that, but does that also mean to the downside you're hurt even more as a result, too? It, in, in this case, since we're also, uh, we, we get our protection by buying uh, a put as well as selling a put. So it can impact, but there's somewhat mitigation because we're both long and short options uh, on, on the downside protection piece. And so, how? So that's you... a no. So that's a no. <laughs> it it is. Um, it de- like, there's obviously more than just I, I'd say the level of volatility that can affect the price of options. It could also, you know, yeah. more complex thoughts as such, such as skew. So I I would say you know not not a diehard uh, no because it's a little bit more complex than that. So. Uh... Let me change gears a little bit. As you look across what we've heard from companies and this earnings season, it's been, and we started the show on this note, it's been one of the strangest earnings seasons to date, in part because there's effectively no guidance, at least beyond uh, the next quarter, certainly for the year. How does that affect your outlook, and, and what do you make of that? Yeah, I, I mean, if you looked at... Uh, because that we have this unprecedented economic and corporate, um, you know, earning impacts from these from these lockdowns, it, it, you'll start to see, you know, your traditional, um, I'd say, you know, names that uh, that you would expect to have lower volatility, not be insulated from, you know, uh, from the impacts of let's say the, the lockdown and disruptions of supply chain. So what does that mean? That means that buying actual uh, insurance or actually hedging uh, on your positions can actually you know, help 
uh, as far as like, you know, in our earnings season, because the idea is that in, in this earnings season, I think a lot of investors are actually more focused, maybe not so much on the earnings, but focusing on financial strength and st- stability as opposed to earnings. Because uh, I, I think investors looking at for, for companies with strong balance sheets, positive cash flows, uh, what are some of the firms that, that may be able to take advantage uh, of the recovery and, and are more sensitive to the reopening as opposed to uh, yeah. looking at, you know, looking at earnings because we're really trying to consider the survivability at this point. Right, right, right. And that, you know, you get into the kind of what these target outcome uh, investments are all about. Hey, listen, um, Jeff, nice to catch some time with you. Jeff Chang, he's co-founder, managing director at CBOE Vest uh, on the phone from McLean, Virginia. But, you know, Jason just got... uh, Less than five minutes to go, and you know, stocks got... taking a leg down. Yeah, they, I don't know if you saw that. I mean, a headline uh, just spiked on the Bloomberg, the Markets Live blog, picking up that you know these tensions with China. We talked about this yesterday with uh, with Andy Brown. Uh, I should point out that you mm-hmm. know this was a situation between these two countries. The rhetoric has a real effect on market sentiment in and a, a lot of ways. Of, yeah, and listen, there's a lot of stuff going on. We continue to see headlines about uh, companies, Airbnb cutting 25% of yeah. its staff. Um, they just continue to cross, and that is going to make that economic recovery on, this, on the other side of this much tougher. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.